Hello and welcome to this episode of Sports Weekly India. We've got a new world champion in the T20 format, but it's also the same champion from the 50 overs version of the game. Uh, quite an exciting week we had where the expected and most rooted for final didn't unfortunately take place, but the entire performance of the English team is what everyone's rooting for. Joss Butler, Ben Stokes, unbelievable performances. Heartbreaking Pakistan, but they did really put up an amazing fight. Let's get started with RK and Ayaz and deep dive into this game. Before we begin, a reminder to subscribe and follow us on BingePod, Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. Remember to drop us a rating, it just helps us to improve. Well, it's been one heck of a week. England are now the world champions and you have to say they're deserving winners. Your thoughts, Ayaz, do you want to start? There's no question that England were the deserving winners. They've, in fact, been the best team going into the tournament and they lost their way a bit at the start of the tournament when they lost to Ireland. They had a bit of a struggle against Sri Lanka in reaching uh, the semi-finals. But after that, they were absolutely supreme in the semi-final and in the final. I thought their utterly disdainful annihilation of India gave us an idea of how good they really were. Pakistan fought extremely well, I thought, in the final, but for their batting not coming to the party. Uh, I thought the bowling was absolutely marvelous. And this tells me or tells all of us that this team has the making of a fantastic outfit if they can add a couple of batsmen more, especially in, in the top order. And this Pakistan side could become really strong in all formats. But that's not the point. The point is that England, they overcame this hostile bid by Pakistan to come back into the game, possibly even stop England from winning. At one stage, it looked that perhaps the pressure might get too much and then there's Ben Stokes. What is pressure? You know, there's an old album by a band called Supertramp. It's called Crisis, What Crisis? And Ben Stokes seems to symptomize that, that kind of an approach. Nothing seems to be too tough for him. He just has the ability to soak up the pressure and deliver the goods. We'll talk about Ben Stokes a little later in detail. RK, your thoughts on the English win? I think they played fabulous cricket overall. The reason why I say that is uh, there have been moments where they've been tested. They've come through unscathed. I think the preparation, the planning, and therefore the execution has been top-notch. I would want to probably start off with Robert Key being appointed as the managing director of uh, English cricket. That was a great move. He assembled the squad very, very well. Matthew Mott being given the responsibility of handling white ball cricket. They clearly divided red ball cricket from white ball cricket. So that was a smart move. Obviously, in hindsight, Matthew Mott has had enough and more success in Australia with the women's cricket team. He was seen as uh, one of the best as far as white ball cricket goes. So that was good. Josh Butler being elevated to the position of captaincy was fantastic to see. And you look at that particular squad. You've got all bases very, very well covered. You're talking about a squad that does not have the services of Johnny Besto, Jason Roy, Jofra Archer, Mark Wood did not play towards the end, David Milan, and the list goes on and on and on. Tell me how many teams can actually field two teams or about one and a half teams which are really, really top-notch. And I think England is one of the few. And therefore, when we look at teams, I think there are good teams. There have been good teams. But as a squad, this is probably an unbelievable squad. To hold one-day international uh, title and T20 title is not easy at all. Just tells you 
the measure of consistent cricket that have reaped rewards for English cricket. Absolutely. And speaking of Pakistan, their contribution has been fabulous in making the last week especially very, very exciting. They almost repeated their 1992 performance, but faltered. Was it just a case of them missing out you know, on Shaheen Shah Afridi or did the occasion just finally overwhelm them? Yes. Well, I mean, look, uh, one can always argue that, that Shaheen Shah Afridi, had he not broken down at that particular point, you know, it, it, it seemed like England were looking vulnerable at that point in time. And maybe, you know, two overs more of Shaheen Shah Afridi could have really put them under the scanner, so to speak. But then you can also argue that had Pakistan made about 30 runs more, which they should have, uh, then maybe this match would have gone the distance. It could have been a humdinger uh, and England wouldn't have been able to kind of steer the way out of this crisis. So, I mean, there's a lot that can be left to conjecture. I think one has to accept that England was a better all-round team, as RK mentioned, in all departments. When you look at it, and especially in coping with crisis, even in a T20 match, you come across phases in the match when it gets very crisis-driven or crisis-ridden. And how you emerge from that is the hallmark of a champion team, which is what England have showed consistently throughout the tournament, barring that upset against Ireland. Where Pakistan are concerned, I think full credit to them for fighting back. Their batsmen let them down, that is the bowlers, on a pitch which, yes, there was enough in it for the bowlers, for the fast bowlers as well as the spinners. The batsmen should have got about 165-170. That is something that has been the pattern throughout this tournament. So anything below that was going to be, well, below par. And if you're defending a below par total, then you need some really moments of great inspiration. I mean, just to take you back to the 1992 World Cup when Wasim Akram comes and picks up two wickets of two deliveries and just completely turns the game around. Or you get some lucky breaks and you pick up a wicket through a run out or something like that. But that is only if the other team is negligent, which England weren't. So I thought that Pakistan put up a really sterling performance, especially the fast bowlers. I was particularly impressed, not just by Shaheen Shah Afridi, who has this great propensity to pick up a wicket in his first over. I mean, how often has he done it? Then there's Haris Rauf, who comes in and bowls at electrifying pace. And every time the team needs him, he goes up a notch or two higher in velocity. But the pick of the bowlers for me yesterday was young Nasim Shah. Not quite 20. Went for 25 in his first two overs, you know, facing the onslaught from Butler and co. And then coming back and bowling two overs for just nine runs. And not just that. The way he bowled to Ben Stokes, almost, you know, he could have got him out four or five times. Now, this is where I thought the difference lay between the two teams. Ben Stokes survived that hostile spell. He could have got out four or five times, but no, he prevailed. And therefore, he led his team to victory. And that's what it was the difference between the two teams. I thought, you know, England just had Mog. Pakistan also had gumption, but England had the steadier nerves and obviously the more classy performer when it was most needed. Absolutely. And I think the star of the match of the final was Ben Stokes. RK, I know Ayaz, uh, you have some thoughts as well, but let's go to RK first. What, what keeps Ben Stokes at the top of this pile? You know, people who can absorb pressure and actually thrive in it. I think it's about him loving those big moments. I think that's what I would put it down to. Let's be very, very honest. When uh, about two or three months back, people even questioned his position in that uh, playing 11. To be fair, I think given the brand of cricket that England operates around, given the kind of performances that we have seen from the top order, 
Bench Stokes, to be very, very honest, doesn't have great numbers in T20 internationals. He has great numbers in Test match cricket. His utility is huge. He's the English Test captain. He's retired from one-day international cricket. He's now probably, I mean, I think they've found a way to include Ben Stokes for these big moments. I think that is very, very clear because he's opened the innings. He's played at number three. He's opened the bowling for England. So they have tried to figure out a way to include a Ben Stokes in the 11. And probably, I think when I talked about planning just a while earlier, you anticipate these big moments in a longish tournament like uh, the Cricket World Cup. There will be moments when you will have to absorb the pressure. And as Ayaz Bhai rightly said, he has this remarkable ability of absorbing the pressure. You saw that in the final. You also saw that against Sri Lanka. It was a tight one. It was a tough game. And he managed to pull England through. So uh, different players at different moments. It, it's just sensational how Ben Stokes manages to do it time and time again. And it's, it's a redemption of sorts after what happened in 2016, what he did in 2019 uh, with one day international side and what he has done with the T20 side in 2022. Absolutely. Ayaz, your thoughts on Ben Stokes, the pressure sponge? I, I, I think everyone else should take a back seat. When I say everyone else, I mean all the other players in the world because for my money, Ben Stokes is the world's finest cricketer across formats today. Yes, I know he's retired from ODIs and maybe the English establishment, cricket establishment, is, we should try and convince him to play in next year's World Cup because imagine if Ben Stokes is playing, this England side would become hot favourites actually to win the tournament even if it is being played in India. So that's the kind of impact he's had. Impact is a very key word because he's a high-impact player. And interestingly, we keep talking of impact in T20, which is linked you know, to strike rate and stuff like that, which I think actually is quite misleading. What is Ben Stokes' strike rate in this World Cup? It's not very good. In fact, he wasn't even amongst the runs till the semi-final, or not the semi-final, uh, the match against Sri Lanka, and of course, this match, uh, the final against Pakistan. If you look at his strike rate, it is not as much as a Surya Kumar Yadav or a Virat Kohli or some of the other, or a Glenn Phillip or some of the other success stories. Certainly not to match Joss Butler. But who's the guy who's had the most influence in the tournament? You would point at Ben Stokes. And that's why I think the ability to suss out a situation, to understand, read a game situation, rely on your own abilities, have confidence in your own abilities. In a sense, you know, if I have to draw a parallel, he was like MS Dhoni, taking the match deep and trying to win the match, not saying I must finish the match in the 15th or 16th over just because we've got a great start. So, I mean, some of the hype we hear around T20 cricket is very, very misleading and in my opinion, also shallow. And it puts players, I think, under a lot of pressure for no reason. Ultimately, your job as a player is to go out and win the match, not impress everybody with your strike rate. And I think Ben Stokes is a classic example. He showed that even in the ODI World Cup, we remember that in the final against New Zealand, he's shown that in two consecutive, at least not in two consecutive matches, but two crucial matches. One was in the, in the match against Sri Lanka, where again he took, he took the match really deep because Sri Lanka were proving to be a handful. And then against Pakistan, who had fought back so well. So I think he's got this, obviously, nerves of steel. Maybe there's ice water flowing through his veins. We can use all the cliches. But for my money, He's the most remarkable cricketer of this generation. As, as RK mentioned, what a great redemption song. After being clubbed for four sixes in the last tour in 2016 to come back. And not just that, so many personal crises, you know, getting in on the wrong side of the establishment, being dumped for a year, year and a half, serving out a sentence, so to speak, then taking time off for mental health issues. 
over i mean it's one of the most remarkable stories in sport and this man comes back and he just seems to have this uncanny ability in a really demanding situation to perform at his best and only the rarest of the rare can do that absolutely well let's move to india for a bit rk uh, that was a demoralizing loss to say the very least in the semis how do you come back from this well i think uh, it's a tough question it's a question that the establishment needs to find answers for when i say that i think england to be honest have given i wouldn't say a template but i think it is provided a fair degree of direction in which the game is headed look when we are looking at sport i think we look at a few things that happen around us and we say wow i mean for example i mean you would go back uh, to the dutch team in the 70s and you look at total football you look at what cruyff did you are looking at what guardiola is doing in the world of football and you say wow i mean that's where the world is headed right i mean in that sense not exact parallels but something similar to that is what is being told to us by england as we were having this chat i was just looking at what england have done at the death overs let me just read it out a little bit on those numbers england bowling at the death overs okay 23 for 6 versus afghanistan as in just 23 runs conceded six wickets picked up against ireland they conceded 30 and they have picked up seven wickets against australia against new zealand beg your pardon 36 3 against sri lanka 25 for 5 against pakistan 31 runs conceded four wickets picked and against india is when they have been the most expensive last five overs their bowlers conceded 68 runs and picked up three wickets remember even in that india game india was reduced to 100 for 3 in 15 overs so the crux of the matter is they have identified areas faces of the game and they picked the best men for the job they've had backups at the they've operated according to a plan so in terms of selection as much as we talk about experimentation i'm afraid england has showed that there has to be firm understanding as to what you require Mohammad Shami for example was absolutely nowhere in the picture and all of a sudden he's coming we can turn around and say yes Jasprit Bumrah was injured yes Ravindra Jadeja was injured but you look at the injury list over the last one one and a half years for England Jofra Archer Mark Wood towards the end of it Jason Roy Johnny Bairstow you name them these all guys would have walked into that T20 starting 11 so in that sense yes injuries are a part and parcel of the game but do we have enough backups that's point number 1 point number 2 are you willing to now segregate white ball and red ball cricket because of the heavy workload that you're looking at because of three different formats because of two different you know world cups and the test championship does a single coach have enough bandwidth to operate i know vvs lakshman is going to new zealand rahul dravid has been given a bit of a break but is that something that we are willing to head down that particular path and point number 3 is it time that we identify t20 specialists as uh, ayaz bhai said just a while back i know we can keep talking about strike rates i know we can keep talking about averages but for that particular position forget about the names is he the right man for that particular job under that particular situation are we willing to let go of a few things and work around that maybe that's that's a good starting point for me in the same line of thought I ask, do you think Rahul Dravid is then the right man for the job as coach? 
Well, I mean, those are questions that are being raised now. But when he was appointed, everybody thought he was, you know, he's, he's the best man for all kinds of things in Indian cricket because of his fabulous record and his, you know. No, his, sure, but his... there will always be a reaction based on results. So when he was right. hired, sure, he was hired on the back of his record. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a need for rethink. What I think RK has mentioned is that you know, there's a lot that the cricket establishment has to do refocusing. You know, start winning, and I think that's really the key thing for me. I'll just add to what RK said. That, you know, who you pick, what you do, your bench strength. I think the biggest problem, and I say this, you know, very having thought through this. I think the biggest problem in Indian cricket today is that the conversation within the establishment is not looking for excellence or for winning. All kinds of other things are taking precedence. How much money we make through IPL, selling broadcast rights, transfer window. All this is important, uh, you know, but it's not telling you how to win tournaments. Look at India's track record in the last, what, the last time we won an ICC tournament was 2013. That was the Champions Trophy. In 2017, we lost in the final to Pakistan in, in the Champions Trophy. We've been in the semi-final in the World Cup, we've lost that. We've been in the final of the World Test Championship, we lost that to New Zealand. Last year, we were knocked out of the World T20 Championship, even not even getting into the knockout stage. This year, we've lost in the semi-final. Why is it that we are not able to, and you know, the teams announced some time back for all the matches that are going to take place now in New Zealand against, you know, some of the other fixtures that are there. Three teams have been announced by the BCCI, all very good teams. Each of those players is an international player. It shows that India's, the depth of talent in India is not the issue. You know, I don't think it's the template which is the issue. Is the choice of the squad, which is really, is that the issue? I think all that will change if the thought process is right. If the conversation within the establishment is right. If it is all about who's jockeying for power and which state association and who will occupy this and how do we scuttle that person's chances from getting into a position of authority and so on and so forth. Mind you, it does not remain limited to the administrators. It permeates, percolates, it permeates. Coaches start talking in, in those terms. They're all interested in being relevant to the machinations of or the political machinations rather than focusing on wins. And then it also then permeates into the players. And everybody is interested in just being relevant to say, I must be around so that I have a livelihood. I have some locus standi in Indian cricket. But the whole idea of the conversation leading towards winning tournaments and what needs to be done in this much time span is lost, is dissipated. I think RK made an excellent point about Robert Key being made, uh, you know, managing director of operations or whatever the official de designation. And then you start seeing things fall into place. He's got a role which is assigned to him. The coach's role is well defined. The captaincy and the coaching is divided, or you know, and then from there onwards, the players are talked to in a specific way, and there is a momentum built up towards winning a tournament. You may or may not win it. It can happen. But at least there is a concerted effort. And at least one thing I can be sure of, that you won't have five mishaps over five years. That every time you go there, you know, as the favorite for the tournament, and you end up not, you know, just about a wooden schooner. No, this is, has been a very long-running problem, the whole power play that happens. RK, one last question. Rohit Sharma. What does it look like for him now in T20, especially in light of how the Mumbai Indians did last year? Uh, well, I think I think when we are when when we are looking at captaincy, 
look, he's had a fairly ordinary tournament. There's no hiding from that fact. And the captain will have to take responsibility. For all the talk about India having a very, very strong batting unit, it's actually the batting that has let us down and crunch moments. You can't blame the bowlers uh, in, in the overall scheme of things. Particularly with respect to Rohit, I think he will take a step back and analyze at what stage of his career he is and what is he going to do going forward. Is he willing to play all formats of the game? That's the first thing which I'm sure he's going to think about. Look, we are nobody to decide for a Rohit, but I'm sure Rohit will know what has transpired in the recent past. Is he going to play red ball cricket? Because you're increasingly looking at players prioritizing. I just read a report where David Warner has come out and said that it could be my final 12 months of red ball cricket. So that will take a bit of burden off him. But results, at the end of the day, you like it or leave it, you're only measured by the results that you get. I honestly think going forward, when I advocated for two different teams, I'm seriously thinking Hardik Pandya could be the man. I mean, give him the job. I know he's, he's leading the side in New Zealand, but give him the job when he's at the peak of his powers. You don't want two years down the line or year down the line when a captain has a shelf life. And I think this is just about the right time when he's done well with Gujarat. I think Ayazbhai also did mention in one of our earlier podcasts, uh, he's just looking good in every which way. Personal life settled, on the field looking settled. Uh, whatever he does seems to be working. So maybe that's one area that uh, you might want to start off and understand, speak with the captain to figure out what you need in terms of a team. Maybe there's a good rebuilding phase. Just as Mahendra Singh Dhoni had a very completely different setup, by choice or chance, in 2007. And that surprised the world. Maybe this is a reset point for us because all our big boys are not getting any younger. Maybe it's time now to look further and understand what's the best composition ahead of that T20 World Cup in the USA and the West Indies. Well, thanks for that, RK and Ayaz. Let's move on to other sports with Samil Arora. Mercedes snapped their winless run for 2022 as George Russell became the 113th Grand Prix winner in Formula 1 history. And here's some trivia for F1 fans. Lewis Hamilton must now win in Abu Dhabi to retain his record of a win in every season as Carlos Sainz rounded off the podium. For all the details from the race, here's Samuel Arora. Oh my goodness, that race has still not digested properly for me. I, I'm still thinking about it every minute of the day so far because there were so many things to pick out. And first off, Wowie, George Russell is a race winner. George Russell, who struggled for three years at Williams, consistently in a terrible car that was often two or three seconds off the pace. But he outdrove that car. He consistently outclassed his teammates and performed with the midfield teams, even though his car was just not even supposed to be there. He earned that Mercedes drives earlier on this year. And once he's gotten in here, he expected the team to be right at the very top. But it wasn't. It was just a glorified upper midfield team. But the way Mercedes have worked so far this year, they were able to win this Brazilian GP on merit. And when it mattered, George Russell put in the right lap in qualifying, got to a good position in the sprint, beat Max Verstappen over there on Saturday, and then on Sunday as well, outclassed every single one of the drivers to win the race. It was fantastic. Lewis Hamilton could have won, but he had an early contact with Max Verstappen that broke off a part of his front wing. And that resulted in him not being able to close up with George Russell. But he eventually finished up second. And that means that Mercedes have scored their first 1-2 since 2020. And 
Lewis Hamilton, I thought, would be frustrated, would be angry, would be pissed off, really, that, oh, he's not the one breaking Mercedes' winning duck after a very, very long time. But he was happy. He seemed content with life. He was all right that he was not the one. I mean, it's not like he's lost his hunger, but he's just learned to accept the fact that some days you just aren't going to be the one to win. And that happened because, unfortunately, he had a bad lap on Saturday. On Friday, actually, because we had a sprint weekend and Russell was able to capitalize. But for George Russell, what a great moment. But it was a day of big egos because Max Verstappen showed that he was exactly the opposite of Lewis Hamilton. When Lewis Hamilton was gracious to his biggest rival, his teammate, Max Verstappen was not. Let me lay down the circumstances. Verstappen has won the world championship. He's finishing in P6 right now in the race. Everything is fine. He's not winning. His car is not working very quickly in this particular circuit. Must be a track-based thing, but whatever. He's got nothing to gain. He's P6. His teammate Sergio Perez is P7. And if Perez gains one more position, he gets valuable points to beat Charles Leclerc in the race for P2 in the World Championship. And you know what happens on the last lap? Max Verstappen denies the opportunity for Sergio Perez to let him pass. The team ordered that thrice. And Verstappen said, no, is it clear? I'm not going to do it anymore. Don't ask me that ever again. Get this in your head. Who's running the team? Is it Verstappen who's running the team? Or is it Christian Horner, the team boss, who's running it? It seems like he's got this unbelievable influence in the team. And his lack of teamwork is genuinely childish. It's not like he was fighting for a championship. And we've seen so many great drivers like Michael Schumacher, like Lewis Hamilton, let their teammates pass when they need to, when they require more points, even though they might be in a championship fight. But Max has just acted like a kid over here. And Sergio Perez has helped him so much. He helped him in 2021 in stealing all those points away from Lewis Hamilton and defending so hard against him to ensure that Max could win the title. He's given a couple of wins to Max Verstappen already in this year. And after all that he's done, this is what he gets in return. So weird how this played out. And we saw a major, major ego of Max Verstappen emerge. And that's become the biggest story. In fact, overshadowing George Russell's win. But let's put it this way. Verstappen's ego was just as big as the elation and the shock of watching George Russell win his first race. And my word, what a weekend this was. Thanks for that, Somil. And the world moves into football World Cup mode after the T20 World Cricket. The final weekend of league action around the world saw much turmoil. Man City lost at home to Brentford. Liverpool looked like they were finally finding form again. Spurs had yet another comeback from behind win. It's become a habit for them. Chelsea lost. No surprises. Arsenal won. No surprises again. And they're now five points clear at the top, setting us up for a bumper return on Boxing Day. But with more details of this roundup, here's Somil. The Qatar 2022 World Cup is about to start this weekend, but I think we should do a more detailed, longer preview of that. So wait for us in the midweek when we come to talk about the World Cup in general, about which teams to watch for, just what are the craziest backstories that have gone on in the organization of this tournament, and what should we expect over the course of the next month and a half. But that episode is going to be coming up in the midweek. For now, let's talk about club football. And Cristiano Ronaldo has just gone in there and set the world on fire in all the wrong ways possible. He's gone on to give an interview with Piers Morgan and he says that he is absolutely feeling betrayed by the club. He does not respect Eric Ten Hag because Ten Hag apparently does not respect him. Here's Cristiano Ronaldo, who's consistently thrown a fit of anger, who's not wanted to come on to the pitch when the manager has invited him, who's not been in training many times, who's left the game midway through, 
who is not reported to pre-season training on time. All of this has happened and he claims that the club does not respect him. Apparently, according to him, it's because the club haven't showed any apathy when in 2022 he wanted to spend more time with his daughter during pre-season. The United management were like, okay, no, Cristiano, you should come and train. And Ronaldo felt that the United management weren't quite respecting his family time. Subjective, I think we can't analyse that. He's got one really important point where he says that Man United have the same gyms, the same equipment, the same technology, the same chefs, the same jacuzzis, the same pool as well as when he was 21 or 22. And he's right about that. The club haven't quite put anything into the investment part of things since Sir Alex Ferguson has left. And he's absolutely spot on. But here's things get really tricky. He says that Ten Hag does not respect him. And I, I disagree with that, actually, because... Ronaldo has made it all about him, all about his perspective. It seems like he's not quite happy with how he's performing anymore. His, his ego, obviously, is as big as the shock of Manchester City losing to Brentford this weekend, which we should come to. But Ronaldo has made it all about himself, about, oh, I'm not being respected. I'm bigger than the team. You should play me. I should be able to play even though I'm not a part of the preseason training, even though the style does not fit me. I should be a guaranteed starter. And whenever he's been on the pitch, Manchester United have been worse off. Worse off in build-up, worse off in finishing, worse off in attitude. Everything is worse off with him playing. <sighs> Why? Why in that case should Eric Ten Hag treat him any different? And the manager has been absolutely correct. He's building something for the future. He's building a squad with spirit, with determination, with youngsters like Alejandro Garnacho who are able to steal wins at the last minute of the games. In consistent days, actually. They did that with Aston Villa. They did that with Fulham this weekend. United are showing spirit. They're showing a younger squad that's actually playing good football. And Ronaldo is just not a part of those plans in any way whatsoever. And so he's throwing a fit of anger. And we're seeing this whole ego issue come out. And I, I don't really agree with him. It seems like he's thinking that the, he he's thinking that his personality and his ego and all that he's achieved is bigger than the club. But here's a quote from Sir Alex Ferguson about the entire matter that he quoted all the way back a decade ago. He said that the moment a player thinks that he's bigger than Manchester United, it's time to go. Maybe that time has arrived. Ronaldo even targeted Wayne Rooney of all people. Can you tell that? So, weird, weird how this is going on. But I think this, this relationship has to come to an end. Ronaldo has to go. And his attitude has been extremely unprofessional from probably the most consummate professional in the footballing world. So, crazy how the circumstance is playing out. But otherwise, I mentioned very briefly, Man City losing to Brentford. What happened over there? How did that all of a sudden happen? How was Erling Haaland tamed by Brentford, who this season, by the way, have beaten Man City, have beaten Man United and Chelsea as well. So, essentially, Man City were sloppy. They played terrible passes. They played bad long balls and consistently got distracted in the middle. Brentford were tight. They were compact. And believe it or not, in the 98th minute, Ivan Toney scored the winning goal and he reminded Gareth Southgate that you should have picked me in the World Cup squad, buddy, but you didn't. And you might end up losing the World Cup because of that. And Ivan Tony has become a big name. He's scoring goals everywhere for Brentford. He's been a tremendous striker. But with that loss and with that sloppy performance where even Erling Haaland couldn't do anything, Man City are now five points behind Arsenal at the top who lead with 37. City are at 32. But the team in third is Newcastle United because they beat Chelsea at the weekend 1-0. Of course, it was a very tight fixture. Chelsea could have very well won that game had they capitalised on a couple of chances late on. But Newcastle didn't capitulate. They were very composed, very sturdy. And Graham Potter's style of Chelsea, style at Chelsea rather, 
has been terrible to watch. He's been really slow. They've been making tactical changes, but it's not exciting enough as well. And I think Peter Drury nailed it when he said that Chelsea are now playing a unique pressing style under Graham Potter. It's called depressing. Depressing. Yep, that's right. Because Chelsea are eighth, Newcastle are third, Spurs are fourth after a dramatic game against Leeds where they won 4-3. Man United are fifth and Liverpool are back in the top six again. So the Premier League is going wild. Ronaldo is going wide. Ah, oh, man. This football season is going to be crazy. But now we've got a break for the World Cup and we should talk about that in midweek with a bigger preview episode. So stay tuned right here. Thanks, Omil. And that wraps up this episode. We'll be back next week with more details, including the NITO ATP finals underway right now, where Rafael Nadal has actually already suffered a loss. Stay tuned and we'll be back next week. Bye. Bye.